Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Yeah, you better not stop You got 24 seconds Can you beat the shot clock? What you waiting on, little daddy? I ain't got that much You seem anxious, you seem adamant All right, so we live, obviously, in time uh, But as St. Augustine said Nobody asks me what time is, I know what it is If anybody asks me, I don't know But we do know that how we measure time And Certainly for centuries, we measure time basically by the rotation of the Earth. So it broke down to 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes per one of those hours, and 60 seconds for one of those minutes. It's a little bit more complicated than that once you start adding atomic clocks, which measure time much more precisely. And so we've gotten into some creative accounting (laughs) over the years, uh, and we're going to change the way we do our creative accounting. And here to explain all of that. Oh, before I go to the guests, let me just say, let me just repeat what I said before the news, which is, you know, we're in a pledge drive and we're always very frustrated during pledge drives because we often, our shows are often a single thought that we are pursuing across a cluttered and complicated landscape. And we just realize it's too hard to do that during pledge. So today we're developing all kinds of different shows that we're doing this week. And today we're just going to pick three things and consider them individually. Here to help us with the first thing uh, is Judah Levine, a professor of physics at the University of Colorado and a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Welcome to our show. Uh, Thank you. It's very good to be here. So I began by sketching out the reasons that we have a leap second, but you're the physicist, not me. You should probably be doing that. So explain, there is though a disparity between astronomical time based on the rotation of the Earth and atomic time, which is a much more precise animal. Oh, yes. You've explained it very well. Uh, The, the, uh, when atomic time was defined uh, back in the 50s, uh, it turned out that the length of an atomic time second was a little too short relative to the length of the astronomical uh, time that the second derived from astronomy. And that meant that uh, atomic clocks would run fast with respect to the astronomy. Uh, and so in order to keep the two time scales linked together, uh, whenever that time, whenever the atomic time got uh, almost one second ahead, uh, we agreed to add exactly one second, which was called a leap second, and that allowed the Earth to catch up. Uh, that has been true since 1972, uh, and we've added a total of 37 leap seconds since then. Um, that has produced, uh, that was a good idea when it started, but it's produced all sorts of problems now. And so we are considering the idea of discontinuing leap seconds uh keeping the link between astronomical time and atomic time, keeping a link, but a link that's more, uh, that's still under discussion, but will not have leap seconds. 
Right. Now, if I, we should say that if I were a cesium or a terbium atom that was being used in one of the 450 atomic clocks that make up coordinated universal time, better known as UTC, I'd be saying, Professor Levine, no, it's nothing wrong with us. It's the Earth. The Earth rotates too slow. Don't say that our seconds are too short. Uh, but it doesn't really matter whose fault it is, right? The problem is there. Or is it a problem? That, that that's right. I mean, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's that the the for historical reasons, uh, time has always been linked to astronomy, and it's very desirable to maintain that link even in the atomic clock age. So obviously, this started to get really important. I mean, the the precision and the use of atomic clocks starts to get important when you have things like GPS satellites. Uh, these satellites uh, carry atomic clocks inside them. Disparities start to become a problem for that. Uh, for things like power grids, uh, there are ways in which that little bit of imprecision is a luxury that we can afford in the context of normal human affairs, but we've now developed technologies that can't tolerate it. Could you say more about that? Uh, sure. I, I think uh, I think what you've said is, is, is true, but more generally, the, the difficulty is that <clears throat> the addition of the leap second introduces a step in time, but it also introduces a step in time interval. That is the elapsed time across the leap second, which you could obtain by subtracting the the end time from the first time, and that that calculation would be wrong by one second, uh, because there's an extra second in there that's not part of the calculation. Now, anything which is dependent on a real time process, for example, navigation, in which you measure the speed of an object by measuring its elapsed elapsed distance divided by its elapsed time you're going to get the wrong answer because the elapsed time has in that extra second that you haven't accounted for. Uh, the result of that is that navigation systems that depend on on moving objects, uh, the electric power grid depends on exactly 60 cycles per second and so on. Anything which depends on time interval or frequency has a problem with leap seconds. And, and that was recognized back in 1972, but in the last years it has become much more serious because those kind of applications have become much more common and much more important. And so if you do it wrong, if there's some kind of mistake in adding that leap second, you can create some real problems. Well, I think the, the, that's right. And so, for example, the GPS system uh, and and the, the Galileo system, which is the European version of, of GPS, and the Beidou system, which is the Chinese version of GPS, all of these navigation systems use a time system which does not have leap seconds in it. That is, a it's a continuous time scale in which there are no leap seconds for exactly the reason I've, I've outlined, that an important aspect of those things is navigation. So um, you said that there were countries were considering a change. I mean, they've kind of decided, right? I mean, if I understand it correctly, in the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, is going to get rid of the leap second. Stop adding this. And, and just so people understand the, the trope here, this is like leap year, like a leap day, a leap second gets added. To get rid of this leap second by 2035. Is there any wiggling out of that or is that the way things are going to be? No, no. I think, I think that's what you've said is true, but that's not the whole story. Uh, the answer is yes. We're going to – we have decided or the international community has decided to stop leap seconds. 
but there will still there will still be maintained a link between astronomical time and atomic time. It won't be leap seconds, but it'll be something else. And the something else is what we are currently discussing now. So, so, so the link is going to remain, but the leap seconds are going to stop. Now, the one country that doesn't like this very much is Russia. They have a satellite system called GLONASS that does depend on leap seconds, as I understand it. I believe at that meeting, they were hoping to push this off at least until 2040. But explain, uh, is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, what, what you've said is, is, is accurate. The GLONASS system, which is the Russian version of GPS, uses uh, a time scale which includes leap seconds. Uh, and that's a... That that's a rather unusual choice because, as I've said, the leap second business makes uh, navigation and time intervals different difficult. But nevertheless, that's what they do. Uh, in their their initial proposal was that they wanted to delay any change for 15 years, and and uh, the community thought, based on what they had said, that the 15 years would start in 2020, which suggested that the 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 change could be in 2035. Uh, in subsequent times, they said yes, it's 15 years, but the clock hasn't started yet, and and the start time has slowly advanced. And as you said, the latest start time was 2025, which would have made the change in 2040. Uh, that uh, obviously that was not that was not accepted, uh, and so the question of what will happen is still not completely clear. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion that we ought to have a change somewhat earlier, perhaps as early as 2030. Uh, well, I'm sure it can all be worked out. I've never known the Russians to overreact to anything. So um, the uh, there's another wrinkle here, another wrinkle in time, so to speak, and, and that is that the world is starting to spin a little bit faster, as I understand it. I mean, there had been even been some conversations about doing the opposite of a leap second, essentially having at some point in order to keep up with this kind of accounting to subtract a second, uh, which you know, also brings up questions about, well, if we've never done that before, what if we do that wrong? And some really bad things happen with power grids or, or satellites. Right, right. The, the, uh, the current, at the current, at the current time, that is right now, uh, the Earth is gaining almost a tenth of a second per year relative to, to atomic time. Uh, now, if that rate were to, if that rate were to continue, and there's a big if in there, if the rate will continue, then in six years or maybe seven years, we would need a leap second. And that would put the leap second, uh, sorry, a negative leap second, mm -hmm. as you said, where where the Earth would now be ahead of atomic time. And so we'd have to we'd have to have atomic time skip a second to catch up. Uh, but but I ought to I mean, you ought to recognize that that requires an extrapolation over six or seven years. And and that's a long time to make an extrapolation. The 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 rotation rate of the Earth is really quite variable. And, and saying what's going to happen in 2030 uh, has a very significant uncertainty. Right. I mean, we should just point out this has to do with the fact that a lot of things ranging from from gravity and the pull of the sun and moon, but especially because the Earth is kind of unevenly composed. It's not this perfectly symmetrical ball bearing that's kind of the same stuff all the way through. It's solid and liquid. It's a lot of liquid. It's not a perfect sphere. All of these things make it a less predictable thing in terms of its spin. Yes, absolutely. The, the two main effects that you have to consider are first one, first of all, the one that you've announced, which is the exchange 
of angular momentum, that is the exchange of spin rate between the inner core of the Earth and the outer mantle, which is where we live. And another important effect is the change in angular momentum, that is the change in rotation rate between the Earth and the atmosphere. And, and those two effects are very hard to predict. Uh, there is a smaller effect, which is the melting of the glaciers, which tends to, to take water, which is frozen near the poles and move it out near the equator. And that tends to slow the Earth down. That's, a, that's an effect, but it's a smaller effect. So let's say that this goes forward and we, we stop adding leap seconds in order to correct for this disparity between kind of the, uh, the time of the Earth and the time of the atom. Most of us are never going to notice this, right? Those of us who are not involved in things like, you know, GPS coordinates or, I mean, like running something like that. The average person on the ground just, I don't know, even using their phone to get themselves to a destination. We're never going to notice any of this. Well, I think I think that that's right. I mean, after all, since 1972, we've added 37 seconds. And and generally speaking, life doesn't run at that level of, of 37 seconds. You, you don't go to the bus stop 37 seconds before the bus is before the bus is going to appear. But but uh, everybody, all of us use that time implicitly without necessarily realizing it. Uh, we use cell phones, we use power grids. All of these things are, I mean, we don't recognize that these things depend on a smooth time scale. Uh, and so so our everyday life kind of is implicitly going to be uh, affected if we don't make any changes. I think the one group of people who might actually notice, I don't know how active they are these days, would be Druids. You know, I mean, there are some cultures in which at a certain precise time, the sun is supposed to strike Stonehenge or Newgrange or, or whatever in a very specific way. So I suppose, you know, if we kind of get too far apart between atomic time, uh, the, which is the time we'll, most of us will be using, and, and Earth time, the Druids might notice. Well, I, I've been to Stonehenge and— uh, uh, my private opinion is that the sun doesn't move by an appreciable amount in 37 <laughs> seconds. And and uh, so uh, I, I was at, I mean, I went to Stonehenge for exactly that purpose many years ago. Uh, and and uh, uh, you you can't, I mean, 37 seconds is too short a time to see an effect. I, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get very excited. All right. Well, I'm going to take your word for it because you are, after all, Judah Levine, professor of physics at the University of Colorado and a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks for joining us today. A pleasure. We will now take a quick break. We will come back. We will tell you a different story. This one is about the term animism, how it's used and how it isn't. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're going to talk now about the term animism. Uh, you'll, you'll hear it slung around these days in a lot of different contexts. It typically is interpreted to mean the notion that objects that we might think of as inanimate, uh, rocks, trees, rivers, uh, have uh, life of some kind in them. Um, increasingly, uh, as a point of international law and conservation law, there are ideas that they should have legal status, in some cases to sue their oppressors. Um, and, and the notion of animism has been around for a very long time, particularly within the world of anthropology. Uh, it may be being misused a little bit at times, and here to help us out with that is Justine buck Quijada, associate professor in the Department of Religion at Wesleyan, uh, the author of Buddhist Shamans and Soviets, Rituals of History in Post-Soviet Buryatia. I hope I said that correctly. I probably didn't, uh, but that's why you are here, Justin Buck Giada. So first of all, tell me whether I said that right. Um, hi, thank hi. you so much for having me. Um, and no, unfortunately, you didn't. Uh, it's Buryatia. Buryatia. Okay, got it. So uh, this is a little bit based on an article you did in one of our favorite online publications, The Conversation. Uh, in a nutshell, describe the point you're making in this essay. Um, well, the essay came out of um, precisely, as you said, the fact that the word animism seems to be thrown around all over the place. And uh, when I was in graduate school, we were taught that that was a term that no one used anymore because it had a very troublesome and somewhat racist history. And all of a sudden, every environmental journal is talking about animism as this sort of magic bullet. And um so while I think it is incredibly important for indigenous voices to be part of, of addressing climate change and environmental discussions, um, yeah, I was a little concerned that people are using this word inappropriately, um, or at least without understanding its history. Um, so animism as a term comes out of, it was coined in the 1870s, and it comes out of a um, period of anthropology where people were classifying different cultures along a level of development. So Tyler, who coins the term, is a Quaker. He takes this very Christian idea of the soul and argues that certain indigenous groups are more primitive than others because they believe that inanimate objects have souls and they will eventually come to a more scientific um, understanding of things. Uh, and so there's this initial misrecognition that Tyler has there in which he deems certain people to be more primitive than others because they don't understand the scientific distinction between animate and inanimate. Um, and uh, the other thing that that sort of I felt like was missing from that term 
right? It, it has that that history. Most people that use it now don't intend to make that argument at all, right? They don't realize that it has that history. Um, but they also don't realize that most of the people whose practices can be labeled animist, it's not just a matter of believing that something is alive or has a soul. It's about acknowledging that these beings in landscape, mountains and rivers, um, are more powerful than we are. Um, so it's not just that they're alive, it's that they have power over us and we need to respect them. We need to ask for their permission. Um, we need to ask for permission before extracting resources, before hunting, before um, growing crops. Um, and if we don't, we might be punished for that because we live by their grace in effect, right? We live on them, we live from them. Um, and that that aspect of the power differential there, the fact that like humans are the less powerful members of the relationship, that tends to get erased in the way people talk about animism these days. And that to me seems like it's the most important part. Right. So it may be interesting just to sort of focus for a moment uh, on your area of study, uh, which involves uh, a people, uh, an indigenous Siberian ethnic group called the Buryats. Uh, they live north of Mongolia, I think alongside the world's largest lake by volume. Uh, and some of that same thinking was applied to them, but in a much more sort of one-size-fits-all communist utopian uh, idea. Let's sort of get rid of local traditions and beliefs and standardize as much things as we possibly can. But they were, I think, labeled as backwards. And they're really kind of interesting because once those uh, strictures are lifted, it all starts to come back. And what comes back is this really interesting blend of culture where, you know, kind of uh, a lot of the people are Buddhist. A lot of the people practice some kind of shame and an awful lot of people kind of uh, are, are taking a little bit of both from the spiritual buffet table. So does this, does the kind of animism we're talking about now, does this surface under those circumstances? Yes, it does. Um, in a bunch of different ways, actually. Um, yeah, I, I love the metaphor you're using of a buffet. <laughs> that is, in fact, how a lot of people in Boyatia think about it. Um, so Buryatia has has been missionized by Buddhists. It's been missionized by Russian Orthodox. And I always say it's been missionized by the Soviets as well. Um, most of the people that I worked with when I was working with this um, shaman's organization are highly educated. Um, one of the founders of the shaman's organization uh, has a master's degree in engineering. Another one is a veterinarian, right? These are not people that live out in the tundra, they're urban residents, um, highly educated, um, but there is a long-standing tradition there of making offerings to landscape spirits and to ancestors that are very much located in the land. Um, so if you are taking a road trip somewhere, you will stop at roadside shrines and make offerings at those shrines asking for safe passage through the territory. Uh, and everyone does that, not just Boreats. So Russians that have lived there for generations, they do that as well. Uh, and because you, when you make offerings, you leave things behind in the landscape, there's sort of this, this trace in the landscape of, of where those shrines are. Um, likewise, people will travel home to where their ancestors are from in order to make offerings to their ancestors in the place that their ancestors are from once a year. Uh, in order to kind of ensure the health of their family, 
and uh, make sure that you have a good relationship with the land and with your ancestors because you need them to take care of you. Um, so those practices persisted throughout the Soviet period. They were often practiced underground. They were definitely not talked about. Um, but now that the Soviet Union is, is gone, um, people are very invested in rebuilding that, even though they're very much um, part of what one might consider um, a more scientific worldview. Um, and so there, what I find interesting about that place particularly was the way in which people were um, complicated about the way they did it, right? It was mm -hmm. sort of like, I want to honor these traditions. I feel like if I don't do these practices, I might be at risk. At the same time, I'm not sure I believe in it. Um, and so I think it's kind of more instructive for people in the West who who are also interested in changing their relationship to the environment um, as opposed to, you know, cultures where that, you know, that aren't as urbanized that still live very much on the land. It's a different kind of relationship. Yeah, that that's sort of interestingly kind of uh, almost sort of Schrodinger's cat uh, style of belief is, I think, a pretty common one. I'll, I'll use my own ethnicity. I had a friend uh, visiting in the west of Ireland and staying in a guest house and noticing that the fireplace was boarded up and certain windows were boarded up and uh, asked her host, uh, do you believe in the little people? And the woman answered, no, but they're here. Um, and, and so, no, but they're here. Uh, and I, I, I guess my last question for you, unfortunately, I'm running out of time here, but, you know, it's as long as we don't do it patronizingly, it's not a bad thing to notice all this, right? You've got uh, some of the things you cite, for example, instances of people living in British Columbia and Alaska uh, in the Mount St. Elias ranges who often describe glaciers as sentient, animate, and quick to respond to human behavior. You talk about the work of Marisol de la Cadena, uh, who looks at uh, Andean people uh, who also had similarly kinds of quote-unquote animistic beliefs that were extirpated or at least tried to be extirp extirpated by uh, by Christian clerics walking through the Andes in the 17th century. Uh, that these things, there's there are people who want to drive them out, but it really becomes kind of a conversation of how are we going to think about the world that we live in and who gets to decide how to think about the world that we live in. And given the mess we're in right now, it's not a terrible thing maybe if to some degree people think of, say, a glacier as alive and animate. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot to learn. Um, and and everything that I'm saying, I, as you said, there's lots of work that deals with this. Um, everything I'm saying has been said by indigenous authors for quite some time. Um, uh, writers like Winona LaDuke, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, Leanne Simpson have been writing about um, this kind of relationship with the environment for a very long time. And you know, people get very tied up in like, do you believe that this being is alive? Well, if a mountain crushes your house with a mudslide, I mean, it's an actor that has an impact on your life. Whether it did that on purpose or not, right? That, I mean, that being that that mountain has agency, right? I don't think it's really such a giant gap. People get caught up in the belief part. Um, but, you know, as you said, like, do you believe in the little people? No, but they're there, right? Like, people do things 
And and part of what I is like I I work on ritual, and part of why I find ritual really interesting is because people do things, and the way we do things sometimes changes our behavior, regardless of whether or not we believe. Right? Believe is a very slippery kind of category. Um, so yeah, I think there's there, what can it hurt? Right? I mean, that's what my Boreat friends say when they leave offerings. They're like, I'm not sure I believe, but what can it hurt? Right? Better safe than sorry. And um, so I, think I, it's a, I, I do think there's a lot to be learned. It's a good way to put it, I think. All right. We have to stop. Unfortunately, uh, Justine uh, Buck-Kiata uh, um, is an associate professor uh, in the Department of Religion at Wesleyan. Uh, her book is Buddhist, Shamans, and Soviets, Rituals of History in Post-Soviet Buryatia. I think I did it right this time. Uh, we will take a little break. Uh, there's going to be some fundraising that happens here. Some very lovely people are going to ask you to support our endeavors here. If this kind of show or other kinds of shows that we do are appealing to you, please say so and and then please say so with the pledge. Time for a few thank yous, starting with Cat Pastor, our technical producer today, and pretty much most days. Uh, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, and twas she who produced this particular episode as well. Let me just very quickly mention, uh, because it's Pledge Week, we're doing different kinds of shows. Although tomorrow we will, uh, if you're listening on Tuesday, on Wednesday we will suspend all pledge activity. It is 10 years since the terrible tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Uh, and we are going to do a special show about that. I've t- already talked to uh, Governor Daniel Malloy, who was um, governor at the time, was at the scene, uh, Scarlett Lewis, whose six-year-old son Jesse was murdered that day, uh, and to John Woodall, a very interesting guy who's a psychiatrist, a trauma expert, uh, and a faith leader in the interfaith community in Newtown. So all that is there. Uh, Thursday's show is going to be kind of a roundup of all, all kinds of people associated uh, with the show are going to come up with gift ideas ranging from our nose panelists and people like David David Edelstein and, and Ileana Douglas and uh, some of our producers. Anyway, and, and then we'll do a regular kind of nose on Friday. All right. So, um, you know, the, particularly those of you who are listening to a lot of uh, true crime pro- podcasts these days, you might be noticing that there are, you know, there's a whole subcategory of wrongfully imprisoned uh, and, and uh, prosecutorial overreach and things like that. And you listen to these and you think, there's something wrong with this system. Is there any way we could have a better system? And that is the kind of uh, question that occupies the thoughts of Barry Lamb, philosophy professor at the University of California, Riverside, executive producer of the Hi-Fi Nation, of Hi-Fi Nation, that's H-I hyphen P-H-I to help you search for it. Hi-Fi Nation, it's a philosophy podcast. Uh, and for Eon magazine. Uh, He uh, wrote something called Beyond Guilty or Not Guilty. Could a range of verdict options uh, be more just? It's actually a a recorded and animated feature there at Eon. So first of all, welcome to our show, Barry Lamb. Great to be here, Colin. So yeah, we've got a system that at least on paper is kind of binary in nature. You're guilty or you're not guilty. If you're guilty, then you enter a sentencing process. If you're not guilty, you go home. Um, you make the argument, first of all, that not everybody does it this way and also that it might not be the best way to do things. So first of all, you point out that in Scotland, there are three possible verdicts. That's right. In Scotland, you can be guilty, not guilty, and then they have this third verdict called not proven. And that's supposed to be right in between guilty and not guilty. So what happens to you if you're not proven? You still get to go home, I assume. That's right. That's right. It's supposed to be, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why you might have a verdict, right? One is you have, you want to figure out whether you're going to punish someone. And as far as I can see, you whether you're not guilty or not proven, you get to go home and you get to, you know, live your life. But there's like a statement that the law says where not guilty, and if you're not proven, it's a little bit weaker than that. It says, 
eh, we can't prove that you're guilty. <laughs> but, you know, that leaves open, right, um, kind of a state statement, a public statement that this person eh, might be. You know, we have some pretty good evidence that this person is guilty. We just can't prove it. Um, you know, I mean, I think there are some drawbacks to that, but we can talk about those. But we should say in your Eon piece, you actually expand that idea to four, right? Definitely guilty, probably guilty, probably innocent, definitely innocent. So if you had that kind of system, how would it work compared to the way things work or don't work now? Right. So systems like this take into account the fact that jurors are uncertain. And in a lot of very difficult cases, the evidence is uncertain. And the way that we do things in a binary system, right, a system where it's just one uh, guilty or not guilty, you have to kind of force your opinion. You kind of force your statement as a juror into one of these two categories. And another consequence of that is that people who, you know, are probably guilty, but the state just can't prove it very well, are actually lumped together to the people who are definitely innocent in the eyes of the law, right? So like the way that those two kinds of people are treated are exactly the same. And one of the benefits, although there's a lot of drawbacks to a system that's um, that's got more verdicts, so you can have three, and then that opens the question, if you have three, why not four? Why not this person is definitely guilty, probably guilty, um, probably innocent, and um, definitely innocent. Why, if you have four, why not five? And one of the benefits of this is like it actually falls a little bit more in line with how we treat each other in actual life, right? So we don't actually put our friends on trial. But, you know, if you were... You know, like thinking back to me as a teenager, if I was absolutely sure that my friend definitely stole money from me, then I would treat them differently than if they probably did, but I can't really prove it. So maybe they get to still be my friend a little bit. I just won't, you know, watch, I'll watch my wallet around them. And that's very different from somebody who's definitely innocent, right? They were accused, but, you know, they actually didn't do it, if that makes sense. And if, if you think that there's, some reasoning behind in real life treating people differently uh, according to sort of different categories for yourself, then you might think there are some good reasons for doing this uh, at the at the state level uh, in the criminal justice system. So one of the many underlying principles uh, of our system, and we can talk about whether this flag is truly saluted or not, is sometimes referred to as Blackstone's ratio. It's the idea that it's better that 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent person be wrongly punished or imprisoned, uh, that we want, we want a system that tilts that way. Um, I don't know if we actually have that system or not. But to whatever degree we do, you'd want to preserve that in a new system, right? You, and part of my concern with the four verdict system is it gives people, uh, gives juries or judges a chance to say, well, you know, yeah, you're probably guilty. <laughs> you know, you're probably yeah. guilty. They, they didn't entirely prove it, but you're probably guilty. Maybe we need to kind of sort of punish you. Uh, and I wonder how that meshes with Blackstone. Oh, it it's uh, it very much undermines Blackstone. I mean, this is one of the most serious problems. I mean, it doesn't automatically undermine Blackstone. It really depends on what you do with the verdicts, right? So, so in Scotland, what you do with the verdicts is you treat the not proven and the not guilty exactly the same way under the eyes of the law. And in that case, you know, it's just it's just a different verdict, but you know. The, the person gets to go free. And you could do that, right? You could just say only the people who are definitely guilty have punishment um, laid on them. And then the rest of the people, you know, it's just our way of expressing it. 
uh, jurors expressing what their opinion is, but like they're just treated all the same as not guilty. In that case, you're going to be preserving whatever we have now, whether you think that's a you know Blackstone or not, which I don't think I agree with you, Colin. Uh, we don't have that. But uh, but uh, but a more interesting, but also more slightly dangerous idea is that if you have more verdicts, then you actually you know sentence people according to those verdicts. Right. So definitely guilty and probably guilty. They they both get something. In fact, probably innocent might get something, too, because they're, you know, somewhat there's some evidence that they're guilty. And the problem with that is, as you see right away, is that, I mean, I don't know about you, Colin, but for me, you know, there's some evidence I've committed some crimes. I haven't committed any crimes as far as I know. But I mean, that's very, you know, like if you're in a crowd of 100 people and a crime occurs and nobody knows who did it. There's a 1% chance as far as the cops are concerned that I did it, right? Yeah. And if you think, oh my God, there's like now the state's got a right somewhere that buries a 1% chance of having committed a crime. Like, what are you going to do with that? Right. And that, that's dangerous. Right. I mean, it, it kind of struggles, I think, against the, the famous Rawlsian thought experiment design a system you'd be willing to live in without exactly knowing your own circumstances. You're blind to who you're going to be uh, in this system. Well, I mean, in this system, for example, as a wrongly accused innocent person, I, I don't love my chances here. <laughs> I, I, I don't <laughs> love right. my I don't love my chances in the existing system either. But I think they might yeah. be a little bit better than you know lazy jurors having this kind of gray area where they can go, well, yeah, we're going to give you something. You know, <laughs> well, don't give me no, anything. I'm innocent. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. And you know, and, and if you think this about the the legal system, then you might think, wait a second. But in but in real life, I'm actually doing that, right? Yeah. Like I'm actually, you know, when I when I when I have friends around me and maybe I'm the victim of some kind of wrongdoing, who gossiped about me? I don't know, but it could have been, it could have been this person. It could have been that person. You know, I'm kind of, sh I'm sure, pretty sure it's not that person, but I still have some inkling that it might be like, we might dish out kind of mental punishments or we might treat our friends differently when we have some evidence. So like the, so what's, what's interesting about this simply as a thought experiment to me is not only do there, are there some, legal systems that do do this, but also we do this, right, in, in ordinary life. And so if we thought that a legal system was pretty unjust, if it had this uh, around, then we have to, might, we might think maybe we shouldn't be doing this in everyday life either. Right. I mean, we also do it to a certain degree or to a large degree in our own legal system. I mean, very few cases go to trial and get to the state of a verdict. Most of it's worked out in a negotiation process, which at least somewhat resembles what you're talking about, right? Well, it isn't this, but it's that. Well, would you be willing to confess or live with this? Uh, we also have the Alford plea, uh, which yeah. allows a defendant to say, I didn't do this, but I understand there's quite a bit of evidence that might convict yeah. me under these circumstances. I still didn't do it. I'm not admitting that I did it. I mean, there are within the existing system, there's almost a prejudice towards negotiating out some kind of intermediary version uh, of a verdict. No, absolutely. And that's the twist in this video that I produced, right? Um, all I did for most of it was talk about, well, you could have system A or system B, uh, and then raising all of these questions. And then the very end said, well, lo and sorry, lo and behold, we might very well be in a system where we do this through plea bargaining. Um, if, you know, just to give an example, if a prosecutor, you know, has somebody on camera and there's like a 60% chance that it's that person, you know, you could go to trial or you can, but, but by doing that, you risk something, you risk a longer sentence. 
So someone could very well say, look, there's only a 60% chance that that it's me. And in actuality, what happens is your defense attorney says, okay, well, uh, well, instead of a year that he faces in prison for going to trial and being convicted, how about six months or something like that? And it looks like that's exactly what we, we do in ordinary life, right? There's like some evidence, you know, you get threatened with it and then you think, okay, well, I'll take a lesser punishment. Well, that looks exactly like having, you know, different verdicts and proportioning verdicts to punishments to verdicts. I mean, you know, we just also witnessed another process that's intrinsically heuristic. We saw it with the Brittany Griner swap. I mean, ultimately, there was uh, this kind of negotiation process that took place. And I don't think that what Brittany Griner was accused of doing was tantamount to being an arms dealer. Uh, exactly. But but once again, there was this, you know, it was kind of carried out at a heuristic level. Well, if you give us this, we'll give you that. You know, and these things may, it may not be exactly the same kind of thing, but it's what the market will bear in this particular situation, which also strikes me as something, you know, less ideally clear than, than what might, might have been envisioned by other systems. Right. The, the disconnect between the formal system, the trial system where we have things like beyond a reasonable doubt and due process and things like that, and how few actual things happen in that system, where most systems are informal, two people talking, bargaining, right, saying, oh, I have some evidence of this. Well, you have some evidence of that. Well, where can we get to? That that system, it just turns out that so much of justice is actually this kind of interpersonal thing that, you know, dominates most of our lives. And it turns out the justice system, too. And I mean, I think it also crops up in the sentencing period of most trials. You can be found guilty of murder in a state where that's a capital offense. But the jury usually will then have kind of a second session where they talk about whether or not they're going to give you the death penalty or give you life without parole or something else. Right. There's this kind of idea that there's still something to be talked about after that very binary choice of guilty, not guilty. Uh, for. For some jurisdictions, absolutely, um, there are, there is a role for juries to play in the sentencing phase. But for a lot, and especially in the federal system, which I've looked at a little more closely, it's it lies with the judge, right? Mm -hmm. It lies with a single individual right. who is going to be weighing these kinds of things. And with judicial discretion, which I actually am a big supporter of, that you know the judge can take into consideration all kinds of things, mm -hmm. right? And there actually isn't a rule that says you know, things have to be beyond a reasonable doubt for you to sentence this person. You know, a judge can take into consideration past crimes for which the person hasn't been convicted of. And the judge has to think, well, do I think this person actually committed that crime? And if so, I might impose a harsher sentence because I think this is a worse person. And judges are allowed to do that. So a lot of this, um, you know, isn't a hypothetical to think that there are individuals in the justice system making finer grain distinctions beyond guilty and not guilty. They're saying things like probably, and so I'll do something else to them. All right. We're going to have to stop there, although I had other things I wanted to talk about. But Barry Lamb is a philosophy professor at the University of California, Riverside, and executive producer of Hi-Fi Nation, a philosophy podcast. Thanks for talking to me today. The rest of you, thanks for listening. And please, the nice people are going to ask you to maybe pledge to this radio station on this day. Why don't you do it during our time period? People will maybe thank us. 